Welcome to Portfolio Pitch, the show where we get to know the investor behind the investment and what it takes to be successful in raising capital from institutional investors. I'm Samantha Camp, and on today's episode, we sit down with Salen Churi, general partner at Trust Ventures. Coming out of a career as a law professor at the University of Chicago, Sal wanted to do something more proactive to change the law instead of just, quote, sitting around and talking about it. In today's conversation, Emily and Sal discuss why Trust Ventures is investing in incumbent heavy industries, how they're actively changing the legal landscape for their portcos, and Sal shares some very exciting portfolio companies with us. Hi, and welcome back to Portfolio Pitch. I'm Emily Ahrens, and today's guest is Sal Churi, founder and general partner at Trust Ventures. Hey, Sal, thanks so much for joining today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. We are so excited. We did speak maybe last week a little bit, but we're going to dive more in depth now and get a little more detail on your background. So I'm very excited to learn more. Well, happy to talk more. Awesome. Okay, so let's start with your education. I have a note here that you attended undergrad at Miami University. Now, I actually went and did my undergrad and grad up in PA, so I know that there is a Miami University in Ohio. Is this that one or was this Miami in Florida? Because it's very confusing. It makes no sense. It is Miami of Ohio. Okay. for the record, I would like to state that that school was around before Florida was a state, as as many really? defensive Miami of Ohio grads frequently uh, frequently remind you. Okay, okay, <laughs> cool. So undergrads, are you from Ohio then? I'm from Cincinnati. Yeah, cool. I was born in Akron. Okay, so Ohioans. Oh, it's a look great at place that. To be from, but we wind up all over the place. I know. I only lived there for like the first four months of my life, so I very very little memory. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. So my my family is kind of from all over the world. My my mom was the daughter of a Holocaust survivor who was from oh, wow. Europe. My dad was born in Baghdad, uh, and somehow I wound up growing up in Cincinnati, in Cincinnati Ohio, the melting pot <laughs> of the U.S. As of course, they say, <laughs> of course, they converged in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh my gosh. Okay, so you you went to undergrad in Miami, and you did it for philosophy. Is that right? That's right. And did you have a particular path in mind for yourself when you chose philosophy, or were you still just figuring things out? <laughs> You're like, are you? No, yeah. it's a wonderful okay. degree. Don't get me wrong. It's the best. <laughs> <laughs> I know the subtext of that question. You must have had something else in mind. Uh, no, I, I did know I wanted to go to law school. Okay. Um, but I also, I also always had kind of like a passion about a liberal education, right? Like I wanted to, I wanted to use college to just sort of dig in on these things that weren't just the realm of the practical, but also uh, would would kind of allow me to kind of think deeply and analytically about about kind of core core things to living, uh, you know, a thoughtful and uh, a well considered life. Mm. Um, and so, I actually, I'm a big fan of of majoring in philosophy. I have lots of thoughts on the American University that we could veer off on a tangent about, but um, I. I got a lot out of it. I also knew I wanted to go to law school. So it certainly didn't hamstring me by making me any more impractical because I didn't right. want to go to law school. Right. Yeah. Okay, perfect. And then so then you went to Chicago for law school. Yep. University okay. of Chicago. Great. And then you stayed there and did you practice law right after graduating? 
Yeah. Yeah. So I went to law school and then straight out of law school, as, as many law students do, I had just a mountain of student loans mm -hmm. <laughs> to pay off. Yeah. Uh, so I went to, uh, to, to work at two very large law firms doing kind of a range of different legal work. And um, one of the things that I had taken away, um, one of my fraternity brothers and my buddies in college uh, had been the first employee at Uber. And so I was kind of watching that story unfold oh, while wow. I was in law school. Yeah. So while I was in law school, I was, I was watching him kind of build that company. Um, and in the very earliest days, right, when he was the CEO before Travis stepped in and um, he kind of continued on in, in, you know, heading up ops. Uh, and I was sort of just watching all this unfold as I'm in law school, right, studying policy and the way that laws get made and the way they get changed. And I, my first thought was, man, like, this is this is wild. Like, this is never going to work. It's just, a you know, <laughs> the, the policy implications make it very difficult to imagine this being a success. And then, uh, you know, it did work mm -hmm. <laughs> and I sort of changed my opinion and I sort of said, hey, hey, that's actually something really interesting is going on here. I think that that experience was largely kind of what what got me out of the framework of thinking, you know, solely just about policy qua policy and also thinking about the way that policy interacts with technology. Mm -hmm. Right. The way that um, so often technology is way out ahead of the law because technology changes every day. People are improving technology every day. The law is largely static. That's right? right. It only it only changes when we sort of make it change. Mm -hmm. And uh, that inertia, I think, holds society back in many ways. Right. If you look at the, the taxi cab monopoly, like the, 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 the system of, um, you know, the medallion system. It has been around forever, right? Decades, half a century. The, the medallion system had been around forever and it was just a plain old monopoly, right? And people had been complaining about that monopoly forever, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to change the law. And, you know, largely with without success. And in some places they did change the law, but it was washed through the same broken system as the, the, the system that produced the bad law to begin with. Um, and, and what I observed was all this talking about changing laws didn't really get us anywhere over decades and decades and decades, since the 80s, right? Yeah. People have been rambling about this. And then Uber came along and changed the law everywhere in the world in just a few years, with a few small exceptions, right? And, and you sort of see, wow, they created tens of billions of dollars of value, largely by changing an antiquated regulatory scheme, right? right. Where you had these sort of bridge trolls, right? These medallion holders who just kind of wanted to see the world stay the way it was, where consumers lost, everybody lost in the system, except the people who had medallions, and, you know, Uber was able to make this huge impact really, really quickly. And so as I was transitioning from, you know, college to law school, like watching that happen into my, my career in private practice, I had my eye on that saying, how, huh, where else could we do that? And that's mm -hmm. sort of uh, when I pivoted back to teaching at Chicago. And that, that was really kind of my research interest in Chicago and, and the thing I focused on as a, as a professor. That is so neat. So I wonder where you would be today without Uber. <laughs> Probably in a in a dusty office in somewhere. In a stuffy in law office. <laughs> yeah. There or in the academy, which is not a bad place to be. I loved uh, I loved my time teaching and, and in practice, but um, I think what I do today is a lot more exciting. Yeah. So I do want to touch on teaching. So you practiced and then that's when you stopped practicing and then started teaching? Yeah. So okay. I left full-time practice after a couple of years went back in and, and sort of took a full-time teaching job at University of Chicago, the same law school where I had graduated, uh, which was amazing for me because I, you know, all my intellectual heroes were there and you get to just be around these brilliant people all day. And it really kind of pushes you uh, to think deeply about things. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to have 
sort of half-baked opinions around analytically rigorous people, uh, the way that the way that you know my colleagues were there at Chicago. So incredibly brilliant colleagues, you know, formative uh, experiences, and also the students were just so smart and so curious, and I think made me made me a lot better. Um, and just it's a great cauldron for ideas. I think I'm very much a a University of Chicago person. I think it's it's very much a quantitatively inclined data-driven place, but it's also a place where you can ask hard questions and, and mm -hmm. sort of think radical thoughts. And, and I think I enjoyed being in that uh, that intellectual crucible. Um, but yeah, I, I loved I loved teaching. I loved that experience. And you know, I think in many ways private practice cannot compare to it. Yeah. And it sounds like still when you were teaching, you were kind of still formulating your own thoughts on certain things, which would end up being applied to your later work, which we can transition to. So I'm sure our listeners are wondering, along with myself, so law school, professor, venture capital, could you bridge <laughs> those two things for us? Because it's a unique transition. People think, you know, I, I tell people what I do and they're like, man, this is, those are two really different jobs. And the funny thing is in many ways, they're not that different. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I came into the university and, and I was teaching on sort of general kind of contract law topics, uh, but I also had this, this interest in the sort of intersection between innovation and regulation. And I was like obsessively passionate about this topic. And at the time, nobody was really talking about it. It wasn't sort of a, an institutionalized thing. There wasn't a law firm that had a group that did this. Um, it was sort of this black magic mixture of, you know, government affairs, lobbying, regulatory lawyering, comms and media strategy, sort of tech growth hacking. There were sort of all these disparate groups doing things that sort of overlapped, but it wasn't sort of an institutionalized thing at the time. Uh, and I just, I just sort of took it upon myself to go out there and just kind of talk to everybody I could about it. Um, and I started realizing, hey, there's a big missed opportunity here. Um, if, you can, if you can find the Ubers across the economy, these are actually, you're not only doing good things for the world by getting rid of these laws that are either way outdated or really only kind of protect some sort of a cronyist or some sort of a small interest group, you know, at the cost of society. Um, not only are you doing that good thing for the world, you're also going to create a lot of value because the biggest industries in the world are also the most regulated industries in the world, right? right? It's energy, it's healthcare, it's housing, it's all the things that matter most to people, right? And so if you could find a way to use startups as this tool to actually change those incumbent driven or outdated laws and sort of bring the law into harmony with where technology is today, you can really do some pretty incredible things for people, right? And so I was this kind of professor who was, you know, on one hand, I was teaching classes. Um, I, I founded something called the Innovation Clinic at Chicago, where we worked with dozens of different startups, helping them deal with regulatory problems. And we would kind of go in, we drafted a lot of legislation that got passed in multiple states. We, helped, we worked with some really high profile companies, um, helping them deal with regulatory problems. And every success would like unlock tremendous growth. Mm -hmm. And so I very dumbly figured out that I should be running a venture fund, right? It took, it, took me, it took me making someone else a lot of money on these things over and over and over to realize, huh, what right. I should do right. is invest in it first and then change the law. Because in fact, what you're doing is, you're, you're driving alpha, right? You're, you're helping make something intrinsically a lot more valuable by dealing with sort of a narrow sort of set of problems that most founders are not super well positioned to deal with. Right. Most founders are not lawyers. That's a good thing, right? Most founders shouldn't be lawyers. <laughs> right. Um, and so being able to bring some of that sophistication to them, help them overcome those, those, those policy barriers 
unlocks a ton of value. And so I sort of, I was working with our university's venture fund. I was on the investment team there. Um, and I was working with all these, these companies. And then I was thinking and teaching and writing about it. I wrote a book called The Trust Revolution that I'm sure was read by a grand total of 10 people. You don't uh, know that. Could be much more. <laughs> Cambridge, the Cambridge University Press sends me the, sends me the checks and, and they are not substantial. Um, but, but I think I'm do, all these different parts of my brain are working on the same problem. And I think I arrive at this conclusion like, wow, I really should just be running a fund doing a lot of the same work. Right. And in fact... I should find partners who can help me scale the impact that I'm making, you know, running this, this university center. Cause originally the thought was, I just want to find like a great way to give my students access to the jobs of the future. Right. How can I find, you know, the, the biggest comparative advantage for someone graduating from law school? And I said, this is a growth industry that no one's teaching their students anything about. And then I realized, huh, this should, this is an investable opportunity too. And so from there, I went from being a stark raving mad law professor to a stark raving mad law professor trying to raise a venture capital fund. No, it's <laughs> it's so cool and it's it's so unique. So then you went and found, was that kind of your next step, realizing, okay, maybe I can't do this just by myself. I need to find other partners who can help me. Yeah. 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 So um, that's, that's sort of where I went into, you know, look, I don't know everything there is to know about running a venture capital fund, so I should probably learn. Uh, and so I, I kind of went through this multi-year process of just kind of pressure testing the idea. Like, is it even a good idea for, for the person who's actually engaging uh, from, a, from a regulatory perspective to be a source of capital? Could I get the resources I need to be able to do the work, right? Because it can't just be me uh, mm -hmm. sitting in an office doing everything, right? We have right. to think about a way to make it scale. Um, because in many ways, in addition to be a, being a venture fund, we're also kind of an operating company, mm -hmm. right? We're, we're building resources and now we have a world-class team of eight people who come alongside our founders. Uh, and I've, I've sort of you know, supplemented and built on the capability set that I sort of started out with trying to build myself. Um, and now we have like a world-class team and we're sort of like the Navy SEALs, like jumping in with all these companies after we've invested to help them change laws. Um, and so I had to pressure test every element of how you build this company because it had never been built before. So mm -hmm. in some ways, this fund was a bit of a startup. Uh, and the hardest part of that is always raising capital. And right. I got very lucky that, you know, I, I met, uh, you know, early investors who were willing to take a call it high risk, high reward bet on, on this notion that you can not only find some of the biggest potential companies on earth uh, by, by looking in these heavily regulated industries, but also that a venture fund could bring them some of the sophistication, some of the know-how and the strategies that they'll, they'll need in order to overcome those regulatory barriers. And it's funny because now a couple of years later, you know, it's, it's funny to look back, right? Because in the early days when I was pitching it, people looked at me and said, why would you intentionally want to go invest in these companies that have regulatory problems? With, yeah. Why not just go invest in companies that don't have problems? And now it's sort of like a couple of years later, people are like, oh, that's a cliche. Of course, of course, everyone wants to invest in heavily regulated industries. Right. Right. That shift happened very quickly, but it, it was a, it was a funny thing to observe from, from the center. To watch it happen. How many years, because I don't have the dates, how many years would you say it was from kind of the first inception and working at, at the school with the idea in their venture club to kind of where you are now? How many years was that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it's an <laughs> underexplored one by potential entrepreneurs. It took a long time. Um, I had this idea probably in 2014, roughly, okay. uh, 2013, which, you know, 
is a long time after all the things that made it seem obvious to do it, right? right. I don't think I deserve much credit for for the apple dropping on my head. Uh, I think a lot of apples had to drop on my head before I got the picture. Um, but I think from 2014 to 2017 was really me pressure testing it, spending a lot of time in Silicon Valley, talking to other venture fund managers and and have you know a lot of really great mentors who kind of mm -hmm. helped take me from talking head at a law school to uh, founder of a, a venture fund. Uh, but but ultimately, I think the thing that that launched it forward was really finding uh, anchor LPs, people who would make the bet. Um, and that was something, you know, the first fund uh, launched my first fund in 2018. Uh, we did we did fund one um, and we've grown considerably since then. But fund one is really kind of when rubber hit road. So that's a couple of years where yeah. a lot of what I was doing was sort of, you know, I'm doing this at a university, I'm teaching about it, I'm learning about it. And then it sort of became, huh, I got to fundraise, right? I got to go, I got to go do this. Because mm -hmm. as much as I loved my job, I truly believe I had like the best job in the world in many ways at the university. Like I loved it there. But I was like, I've got this idea of burning a hole in my head and I have to go try it. Right. Because uh, I, I think the world is going to miss out on a lot if someone doesn't go do this and mm -hmm. no, one, no one was doing it. Um, so that was, that was sort of what led me to do it, but it, it took a while. Right. And I was very deliberate about it. I, it wasn't like that story of entrepreneurship that people tell you where it's like, you have an idea and then you just sort of jump in and quit your job. It wasn't that for me. It was right. very methodical. I just sort of reverse engineered exactly what I wanted, not just the first fund to look like, but the subsequent funds to look right. like. And it's funny. People say, oh, entrepreneurship always kind of no plan survives first contact. And that is true in the interstices. But I think for me, fund one, fund two, fund three have largely looked exactly like I projected them to look. Like this. Even I that many of, years ago. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, kind of piggybacking off of that, what exactly is the investment thesis at Trust? And is there something specific that you look for in companies that you invest in? Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of things. First, we do all the work that other venture funds do, right? Which I would broadly characterize as some combination of the product, the market, and the team, mm -hmm. right? We got to love all those things in order to get to a yes, right? And we, like many other funds, look at thousands of companies a year, and we wind up you know, investing in less than 1% of them, right? We look at a lot of things. But in addition to all those other things that other venture funds invest in, we want to see the following. We want to see an enormous market, right? Ten billion plus dollar sized market, okay? Right, because we're taking on some amount of regulatory risk. We want sort of that to be compensated for to if we're successful it. in unlocking. <laughs> right. Bingo, right? Because yeah. we're trying to unlock these markets, mm -hmm. and so if we're going to expend all that energy to unlock those markets, we want to make sure that the market is sufficiently large that the spoils of victory are great enough. Right. Right. Second is. If indeed we are, we do find something with a huge market uh, and some regulatory barrier that gates their ability to get into market, we want to believe that we have a unique ability to help them open that door, right? So if you say, hey, we got to change American immigration law to hire more foreign workers, I'm going to say that's awesome, but it's too big of a nut for us to crack, right? Mm -hmm. We're not the right size fulcrum to change, to change that rule for you. Right or to to kind of help you strategize around it necessarily, and so we got to find things that we're the right size to engage on, uh, but also things where we have you know sort of a deep knowledge base. Right, we also look for things that are apolitical. Right, we don't want sort of 
Democratic priorities or Republican priorities. I think what we look for is things where 80 plus percent of people, reasonable minds basically all agree about it, but where there's sort of one bridge troll or a bad guy out there, mm -hmm. right? Who keeps the world the way it is because this never gets out into the public eye. So I'll give you a quick example. Uh, we invested in a company called Visibly. It's an online eye exam. You can get your eyes checked uh, oh, from your cool. computer. And yeah, it's, it's a no brainer, right? Yeah. It's, it's, a third of the price, you can get your eyes checked online instead of driving and taking a half day off of work once a year. And huge problem, right? Two and a half billion people worldwide can't get their eyes checked and need to. And 24% of US counties don't even have an optometrist in them, right? And ophthalmologists, the MD eye doctors love this, right? They think it's great. The optometrists, right, who work at Grand Vision, they don't like it because they want you to come to Grand Vision and pay a hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. and, in front of that hundred-year-old machine where they swap out the lenses, right? The bifocal and thing, yeah. <laughs> bingo. And so you would see, you know, we went to we we invested in the company. We went to work changing on those laws, and you know, successfully changed those rules in for over seventy million Americans uh, last year, which is great. Wow. We opened it up, but your first thought is, why are people trying to ban this? Right? Like right. this is a no-brainer, right? It's everyone agrees about it. And we built this coalition that included. Fortune 20 sized companies, inner city health advocates, rural health advocates, everybody agrees about it except this one interest group. Well, the reality is those interest groups win nine times out of 10. People don't realize this because they fund the little league teams and they show up and the local lawmakers know those folks and they care more about this issue than anything else. And so we've been able to correct that problem for them. But that's that's a really good example where Nobody, this isn't a political issue. It's not a political football, whether we should have online eye exams. It's a pretty obvious thing for society. Mm -hmm. That's our, our sort of, uh, our, our thesis and the way we sort of construct the heuristic for what we're looking for is the obvious is not the inevitable, right? The obvious solutions to big societal problems uh, is not always inevitable. And we exist to help make it inevitable. The things that should should be available to people that can change their lives dramatically lower costs on things that are core societal needs like healthcare and clean energy and housing. So many of these things are trapped behind regulatory barriers and we exist to find those world changing companies and help remove those regulatory barriers. That's so neat. I, that kind of was my next question is, could you give the listeners an example of those industries, but you kind of just name some off housing, um, healthcare, are those really the main, is there any industry you guys stay away from when looking at investments? Yeah. 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 And happy to give you examples on like, what does it mean to unlock this in healthcare yeah. and energy, for example. Um, but to answer your question, your second question first, um, we don't touch anything in sin industries. Um, so this is not, you know, necessarily like a personal thing. We just, you know, we're not going to do gambling. We're not going to do cannabis. Uh, and that's, that's not sort of, uh, you know, Hey, us passing judgment. It's us saying we only want to engage when we know we are on the side of the angels, okay. right? Because we want to build a broad based coalition where everyone basically agrees about it, except, mm -hmm. you know, one, you know, one interest group that's really fighting this. Uh, if people are saying, Hey, this is actually ruining a lot of people's lives and it's a 50-50 issue, that's a bad fit for us, right? We want things that are kind of societal no-brainers, but they've just got to navigate a regulatory barrier to do it. So I'll give you an example here. Uh, we did a company called Icon. We were first money in. Uh, they are a 3D printed housing company. So My mind can can't even wrap around that concept. <laughs> I don't even. Google it. It'll, <laughs> it'll blow your mind even, like, even more when you Google it and you see it. It's crazy. Uh, but they can put up a house in 24 hours out of concrete. And it's really cool. They work with some of some of the best architects on planet Earth. 
uh, and they delivered the first affordable house made out of concrete to a formerly chronically homeless person, right? Just like amazing solution for society, but huge regulatory problems, right? We helped them get the, the first ever permit for a 3D printed house. And that's actually quite a difficult thing to do. If you think of housing, we built houses the same way for literally a thousand years, sticks right. and bricks, right? And just because someone invented a way to do this with a robotic 3D printer, right? That didn't change the law. The law just looks the same way it did a hundred years ago. And so it's really our job to kind of be that advanced team clearing the way for these innovators who, who have technologies that are way ahead of where the law is. We've got to help the law catch up because the stakes are high. Mm -hmm. there, are, there is a housing crisis in this country and we're not going to solve it by just building more expensive houses, right? right? We, you know, we, we look at these problems across American cities and it's a big problem, right? Um, and, and Icon is a solution to so many other things. They've, they've won these kind of incredible contracts for the Artemis program. They're going to build the first house on the moon, the first oh house on gosh. Mars. That's some crazy sci-fi stuff that they're doing. <laughs> but I guess like we look at it from a couple of lenses. One, this is something that can have a significant impact on the housing crisis in the United States. People who cannot afford housing, durable, dignified, quality housing, right? Places like, you know, East Texas, where disaster relief housing gets rebuilt and then mm -hmm. knocked down by a hurricane every, every couple of years. It's just, it breaks your heart. And so this can solve that major societal problem. On the other hand, we also look at it and say, it's a horrible and immoral thing that the law doesn't keep pace with technology. We mm -hmm. want to fix that. And then finally, we look at it as this is a way to drive tremendous returns for our investors, right? People invest in us to identify these opportunities where the law holds back something that is tremendously valuable to people. It's not just societal impact. It's, it's also dollars, right? We, we invested in the company and, you know, they were a tiny startup and they just raised 200 million bucks. Right. These things can grow. And that's in two years. Right. These things can grow really quickly because they're addressing such a big market, such a big societal need. Right. Um, and so we see that as the most asymmetric dollar you can deploy in the economy. And that's why our returns are so good. We're in mm -hmm. the top five percent of venture funds because we identify these opportunities where there's there's a chance to, to have such tremendous growth. Uh, and these these leaps are so asymmetric because the thing really holding it back is not even the technology. It's the law. And, and the policy and, and politics. And if we can change that, we've kind of changed the rules of gravity for our portfolio. So that's that's the way we look at the world. That's so cool. So I am curious, you, you keep saying we. So kind of the nuts and bolts, let's say I'm a portfolio company and I have this regulatory issue that I'm going to need to overcome. Is it mm -hmm. like I get an army of lawyers to help me? How does that really work? Like, what's the team like? Do you have just lawyers on retainer in different industries that can help? Like, how did you guys, that feels structurally difficult to do. How did you kind of structure that? Yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard playbook to execute on. Um, I think it would be hard to recreate. So we, we have partners uh, who are invested in us, um, who are really very much more than just green money. Mm -hmm. um, they, they represent, you know, the largest private and public companies on planet earth. And we get to kind of rent their government affairs capabilities okay. uh, to, to kind of work with our companies. So we're not sort of, we don't just exist as like a switchboard operator making calls and introducing people to people. We do a lot of that, but we also get very operationally involved, right? Helping, helping draft the legislation that we're gonna help push in different mm -hmm. states, right? Um, helping put them in touch with the right lobbyist on the ground anywhere in the United States. It's not an easy thing to do. 
Uh, and every lobbyist is going to tell you they know everybody and that they can do anything if you just pay them a $25,000 a month retainer. Uh, we know that not to be true. And so I think finding the right lobbyist quickly is, is a tremendous value. Mm -hmm. um, you know, helping hire the right internal resources, right? I think a lot of times portfolio founders don't necessarily natively have the right instinct on what the right kind of lawyer to hire is. So a lot of times we're running these hiring processes for our companies and, and helping them interview people and helping them feed the pipeline of who would be a really great policy person or general counsel. Um, and so I think a lot of it is us, us in the weeds early on and really kind of taking an operational laboring or coming alongside the companies and acting like an extension of, of their operational team. I think most of the companies in our portfolio would tell you that we're the MVP of their cap table because we do that. We are actually operationally engaged. We're not, I think a lot of VCs say, hey, we're really value add. We've got mm -hmm. great networks. Call me, I'll introduce you to people. And, and the, you know, the joke about VCs, how they always say, how can I be helpful? Let me know how to be helpful. Mm -hmm. We know how to be helpful because we are in a very narrow lane. And a lot of founders don't need us. Right. A lot of founders are, are building companies that don't have any sort of a regulatory complexity and they're just a bad fit for us and we're a bad fit for them and we wish them the best. But mm -hmm. uh, we, we ultimately are only looking for companies who really need our help. Uh, and those companies know they need our help. Right. right? And so I think it's, it's kind of a marriage made in heaven for those companies that do have some sort of a regulatory complexity, because we can really be a life raft for them in thinking it through. And we come in early because we we help them solve some of those problems preemptively. Right. And so get as out they scale, mm -hmm. get sorry, out in front ahead. of it. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. And so early on, we're, we're operationally intensive. As the companies are scaling, raising their series B's and C's, we're helping them build their kind of nationwide presence. So that's a lot more I need a lobbyist in Mississippi because we're building something there and this is, you know, we don't, you know, we don't know who to call. We can get them that person in 24 hours, right? Mm -hmm. And so we we kind of grow with our companies and we the work we do with them changes over time. And this is why we have people on our team who are world class in many different areas, right? So we have world class regulatory lawyers, world class activism people who have run kind of grassroots campaigns, media and comms. Uh, there are there are sort of you know team resources that can help with kind of every aspect of that because we we want to be a natural extension of our of our portfolio's operating team when it comes to anything in the regulatory realm. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. That that helps paint a picture of how that would be structured because it is it's so unique as far as VCs go, you know. And yeah. I am curious, even though in your role as general partner right now, do you ever flex? your law muscle anymore? Or do you not really dive down that road? Yeah, no, absolutely. Every day. You do? Okay. <laughs> we, uh, we are issue spotting all the time. Yeah. Uh, so I think of myself as my job is I can't solve every problem myself, right? So I right. went out and got people who are better than me at everything that we need to do for our portfolio, mm -hmm. right? And that's that's the way we kind of built our team, right? And so if you look at the way we, we kind of evaluate companies, um, you know, we, we want people who can sort of think about things in different ways. And so we, we have a number of people on our team who have law degrees or come with policy backgrounds. We also have kind of world-class people who, who just come from deal world, right? Mm -hmm. we, have a, we have a deal team uh, that, that is primarily asking the, the first three questions I mentioned, which is like, is this a good idea from the, from the perspective of the product marketing team? Um, and so we need to do all those things. And I, I, I wind up wearing a lot of different hats and, and, you know, intentionally built the fund that way, mm -hmm. right. Where, where everyone is kind of built wearing a lot of hats, right. We, we never do a deal that doesn't have a very clear regulatory component 
And so we're asking ourselves that with every company that we invest in. And if it doesn't meet that criterion, we're often just passing it along to, to other funds that we co-invest with a lot, mm -hmm. right? We have a lot of funds that, that are great partners to us where you know, we've, we, we think they're really smart. We think they're really helpful to, to our companies. And, and if we see something that looks really good, it just doesn't fit our thesis from the regulatory perspective, we're referring it out, right? And I think um, correlatively, we get a lot of inbound from, from other right. VCs who are saying, I really like this, but there's kind of this weird regulatory thing that I don't know how to think about. You guys what take you it. <laughs> Well, often it's, I don't know if I want to do it. So help me think about whether to do yeah. it. And if you like it, come along with us. Right. So we've had a number of those in our portfolio as well. That's awesome. Speaking of portfolio companies, this is kind of a two-part question. Part one, is there a particular culture you look for in companies? And part two, do you weigh team or like a business plan, more importantly? Yeah. Uh, so I'll answer that a couple of different ways. On the, the question of like business plan versus team. Team, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think there's there is a um, people in venture have different opinions about this. They do. There That's why we like to ask. <laughs> yeah, there there are a lot of people. You know, like my my friends at Founders Fund will tell you, you know, a great person makes history, not the other way around. Not mm -hmm. history makes a great person. Um, and then there are others who who fall in love with uh, with the business plan a little bit more. I think for us, the earlier we go, the more we believe it is a founder bet, right? Okay. Because the earlier you invest in a company and its life cycle, uh, the more it's likely to change. If you've already got broad swaths of customers and you've already built a really great product, uh, you're unlikely to kind of radically restructure. And so for us, we we look at, um, we got to love the product market and the team, and you got to have this regulatory piece. Mm -hmm. uh, so we look at all those as threshold inquiries. And then beyond that, we're saying, how much do we love all these things, right? And getting over that hump, I think, you know, we, we do, um, I think early, the earlier, the bet, the more we're focused on the team. Um, and we, we always, I think, have to answer all those questions in the affirmative. I think if, if we're iffy on one or the other, we're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. I think if we're, we've, we ha as a fund have really operated under a, if, if it's not a heck yes, it's a heck no, uh, kind of philosophy and that right. served us well, you know, we are, we are heavily concentrated right? Our, our first fund was 11 companies. A lot of people are out there, you know, writing 30 checks a fund. We don't do that. We want to, we want to pour a lot of time into our companies, which means it's really important to get the ones that we, right. we really want to pour that time into. Right. Um, and so I think we, we are really careful uh, on the uptake that way to really love them on every quantum, mm -hmm. which is cheating and answering your question. But right? we, you still answered. So. <laughs> That's yeah. I yeah. am also I feel like I actually know the answer to what I'm about to ask you so I'm going to guess the question is are you regionally focused I'm going to say that you're not I would say you go where just to your earlier point where you feel like you can really make the most impact is that correct or am I wrong you got it you okay. got it we we sort of say we want the best opportunities worldwide. regardless yep worldwide so mm -hmm. we, we've done deals in Israel for example okay right? We did uh, a mosquito eradication technology out of uh, out of Tel Aviv. This is something I could like, get behind. I hate a mosquito. <laughs> yes, yes. You want to hear a fun fact? This is crazy. Yes, I do. There's a great book that recently came out. I think it's Timothy Weingarten. It's called The Mosquito. Crazy stat, half of the human beings who have passed away in all of history died of the mosquito. Nope. That can't it's be because right. of yeah. <laughs> fact check me on that, but I think I'm I'm pretty sure that's the wow. stat. Wow, like uh, West Nile? 
or something? Yeah, so all these different uh, plagues throughout history. There's actually a theory that the mosquitoes actually killed the dinosaurs, that it wasn't just uh, an asteroid impact. Mosquitoes cause a lot of havoc in addition to being really annoying, right? Yes. In the States, predominantly they're annoying, but in other parts of the country, other parts of the world, uh, they, they kill people en masse and it's it's a really sad thing. And so this technology has tremendous you know potential impact uh, not just to to save lives, but also to make uh, you know sitting outside at a barbecue way less annoying. So yeah, well, that big- does sound as far as regulatory things go. That sounds like an undertaking. You guys are definitely the people for that job. <laughs> That's it. You got it. This is why we exist. <laughs> wow. Okay. So no regional focus, but you are the fund is located in Austin. Is that right? Yeah. We okay. were like, you know, where do we put this fund? And the obvious place to put a fund is you know San Francisco. Right. When, when we so how did you land in Texas? Yeah. So first was I didn't move to Austin saying, I believe in the Austin tech market and I'm only going to invest in Austin. I sort of said, look, I'm going to live on an airplane anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and Texas is this great consumer market that's really welcoming to sort of new and innovative business models. Sure. Right. So it's a great thing for us to be in a place where you know we can be helpful in a hospitable climate that has 30 million people, right? It's mm-hmm. a big market, it's the second largest state in the country. I think it's like the ninth largest economy in the world if you consider Texas as as its own wow. as its own country. Um, and so, you know, that was three three and a half years ago that I moved here. In the intervening three years, Austin has just exploded. And, and indeed, so many of our great investments are are here in Austin, which we didn't really expect for them to be. Yeah, that's just um, convenient. So I do think Austin is has become a thing um, it is in, totally. in venture. And if you look at the people who have moved here and who have set up shop here, I think it's people in the building phase of their career, but who are also just like really bright, exciting uh, and engaged people. And so, you know, I'm not one of these, oh, it's the new Silicon Valley. I actually think just it's not that important that it be Silicon Valley. I think Austin is kind of doing its own thing. And right. a lot of really interesting companies and funds are are sort of kind of cropping up here, moving here. Uh, and choosing to build here. So, and of course, everybody loves Austin and tacos and all the other Right, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> so it's not like you're not miserable living there or anything. <laughs> no, it's the best place to live. It's the best place to live in the world. Awesome. Well, one more question just about the portfolio companies, and then we can kind of move on. But is there anything that a founder could do in a pitch deck to really impress you? Like, is there something that you look for? Is there an X factor when you meet these people? Yeah. So I would say, look, there's there's obviously that we want to see a huge market, right? Right. And that's, of course. That's really a numerical thing. And we we want to see passion, right? We want to see that this founder deeply cares about this problem. Mm-hmm. I think we're a lot less interested in like, look, we identified that this was a big market. So we decided to, to kind of work on it. Right. We want to see people who are like passionate, like who feel a personal compulsion and an obsession to solve this problem, mm-hmm. right? those are the people that build, um, you know, generational companies. Um, so I think, I think we really look for that. And then I think because of our unique lens, uh, because we are looking for people who are going to kind of engage on these, these companies and in regulated industries, we want people who, who want to do it better and safer than the next person, mm-hmm. right? When you're, when you're 3D printing a house from concrete or you're building a modular nuclear reactor or you're remaking the American health, healthcare system, like a lot of our portfolio companies are, we want people who who feel the gravity of that responsibility and do feel a sense of stewardship to get it right. Mm -hmm. Because as we work to open the the policy barriers, we wanna make sure that we're only doing that on behalf of a champion who has thought deeply uh, and and responsibly 
about what should replace this kind of like old antiquated structure. Right. Rather than just saying, open the door and let us try stuff. Right. We, we, we realize that, and, and look, we're not out there saying, Hey, deregulate nuclear energy. Right. right? <laughs> we're saying, Let's have a logical approach that allows for innovation. Right. right. And so we want people who take that very seriously and also people who have, who have thought deeply and philosophically about the import of what they're doing and, and about the regulations, right? We know that the founders aren't all lawyers and we don't expect them to be, but we want them to have contended uh, with, with the regulatory kind of the thorny regulatory uh, bushes that they're, that they're kind mm -hmm. of wading through before they talk to us. Cause I think, you know, it's, it's going to be a part of their company's story. Even if we're going to help them with it, we, we need people who, who care about it and are engaged on it, not who right. sort of, hide their head in the sand and say, hey, it's a problem. I'm just going to call some lawyer and make it go away because right. that's, that's not the way it works. Right. Awesome. Well, here's maybe my last question. We'll see. We'll see how I'm feeling. Okay. But <laughs> is there a lesson that you, is there a lesson learned you would tell your younger self or a piece of advice that you would give someone looking to get started in venture? Hmm. In venture or uh, in venture solely or also to portfolio founders who would we who we would invest in. Let's open it up to both. Okay. Yeah, because it's a different answer. Okay. So uh, lesson to my former self is, you know, the first time that you stumble on this problem, go chase it, uh, mm -hmm. chase it faster, right? I think it it took a lot of reps of, of working with these heavily regulated companies and, and sort of seeing these laws change. Um, in many ways, I'm like the worst founder of the worst inventor of an idea ever because it took me so many times to like even get what was going on. And then when I did, I was like, oh, wow, this is great. We like someone should do this. Right. And so I think I would probably be a little quicker on the uptake, um, <laughs> but I don't I don't think I'd be any slower in the way that I kind of went about sort of laying out my. Right. Because you said you did it methodically. Exactly. Yeah. And I think. I think that's actually a great and underappreciated trait about founders. Mm -hmm. Like the, the popular conversation about founders is like that they're just risk seeking and they just jump in. And I actually don't think that the very best founders are this way. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, message to someone breaking into venture, there are too many venture funds. Um, I have a friend who says more venture funds are getting uh, getting raised now than companies, mm -hmm. which is, is hyperbole, but it's uh, directionally uh, telling. And I think you really need to be doing something different. You know, from my perspective, if you're just sort of like, hey, I'm really brilliant and really great at finding B2B SaaS companies, I just think that not only are you gonna have a hard time raising capital, uh, but you're gonna have an even hard time deploying it uh, with, a, with a good return because it's crowded. So yeah. unless you have a deep comparative advantage in something, don't do venture. Um, and, and I think in many ways, uh, venture will be better where there are more comparative, comparatively advantaged investors. That's, that's my view of it. And then for people starting companies today, I think this is largely already becoming true, but I would say attack the biggest problems. Mm -hmm. A lot of the lowest hanging fruit has been picked. And, right. and I think for a long time, founders, I think were afraid of, of sort of attacking things in heavily regulated industries. I think in many ways, um, a shift over the past, call it half a decade, even just post Uber, I think has given founders permission to think more broadly about what are the biggest things we want to save and change in the world, 
Mm-hmm. Like what are the most important things and work backwards from there. Don't say, Hey, there's a trend around X, Y, or Z. I'm going to jump on, on that, that gravy train. I think it's saying, where are the most important problems not being solved? And this is a somewhat self-serving thing to say because I only invest in those spaces. So I want to see more founders right. kind of taking on those core societal needs. And I think that's increasingly happening. So those are, those are I think, the, the message, uh, messages I would give to, to sort of founders. Um, yeah. If you're starting a fund, make sure you've got a very clear comparative, comparative advantage that you're better at than anyone in the world. And if you're yourself permission to attack the world's biggest problems, because that's what's going to build the most significant companies. Would you have an additional note or a piece of advice? What about if they get started, they start down this journey as a founder or in venture? And what about the first time you're hit with an obstacle or you get rejected? If you don't like hearing no, you're going to be a really bad founder of anything. Mm-hmm. Right? So just get over it. <laughs> If you can't, if you can't, and I actually think too many people, we have sort of lionized the entrepreneur. And I think there are some good things about that. And there are some bad things about that. I think one of the bad things about that is a lot of people who probably are not um, naturally sort of oriented towards that will become, will become entrepreneurs. And it's actually a very hard thing. It's a very uh, isolating thing in many ways. It's a very exhausting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of people who, if you need the encouragement, don't do it, right? If you only like positive feedback, work for someone else. Because if you're going to work for yourself, you're going to get a lot of negative feedback and you can't have a glass jaw. You got to take them on the chin a mm-hmm. lot. Uh, I think for me, like I grew up in a house, my dad was an entrepreneur. He was an immigrant. He came to this country. He's the sort of traditional American dream story, right? Was born with nothing, came here, built a company from zero, didn't finish high school and was just a tremendous success. Um, and I grew up seeing you can do that, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you really do work, and you know he was the the kind of father. He was an amazing father. But I saw him getting up, you know, at the crack of dawn and working until evening for decades, yeah. right? I saw the the sort of like isolation and the difficulty and just the constant setbacks of living life as an entrepreneur. And I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. In a way, um, that's good, you know? Yeah. Like you said, in a way, you kind of knew what you were signing up for, whereas maybe others would be blindsided by that. I agree, yeah. I think I think you should, you should walk into it with your eyes open. Mm-hmm. If you're doing it to be a rock star, don't do it. If you're doing it because you feel that you are on sort of a mission to solve a problem, like, I think, I don't think anyone can talk you out of doing it. I can't tell you how many people told me this was a stupid idea. Really? Right? When I had the idea for, for this fund. It was like 90% of people thought I was ridiculous. They were like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You will fail. Don't do it. You have a great job. Just stay there. You've got this cushy tenure track gig. Mm-hmm. You're not going to leave. Uh, and that 90-10 sort of flipped. Now, when I tell people the story, and I can give them the examples of the companies and the laws right. that we've changed. The, the sort of the outcomes are like, oh, that's a no brainer. Right. Like I thought of that a long time ago. Like you'd be shocked how, how obvious and how great an idea is something is in retrospect. Right. But you've got to be willing to hear no for years. You've got to be willing to, to sort of get, get beaten down. And this is, I think this is true of any kind of entrepreneur. Uh, this is from, from, you know, from a, someone starting a venture fund to someone starting a venture backable business to someone starting a community business. Right. I, I actually, you know, what I was doing 
before um, you know, I started working on, on this at the law school was I was helping legalize street vending in Chicago, people selling tamales and elotes from little carts. Oh. This, this was banned in Chicago. So I, I kind of cut my regulatory chops on this and we helped legalize street vending. It was a I two was going to say, I think I've seen street vending there. <laughs> that is, yeah. And thanks to you, I suppose. <laughs> well, thanks to thanks to all the street vendors, um, I just I did my little part to to help out in the campaign to legalize it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when the when the city and the the, the sort of restaurants kind of tried to gang up on these folks who were grasping the first rung of the economic ladder. But to me, I have a mission orientation about this. I had to do it mm-hmm. right. I was ready to hear no, and I've seen that same that same mission orientation uh, that gets interpreted just as tenacity, um, but it is a mission orientation. Right. In everyone, in those tamale vendors, I saw this is this is my role in the world. This is me feeding my family. Um, I have to do this, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to let someone talk me out of it. And that sort of willingness to run through a wall for your mission should be what guides you if you're an entrepreneur. I fundamentally believe that. I think people who are just sort of saying, "Hey, this is you know this is something that it's a market that's just sort of sprung up." It's a trend. We want to make sure we fill the niche. That's not where we, we want to invest. We want to invest in people who are mission driven and who are, you know, sort of missionaries on something and not mm-hmm. just mercenaries. Wow. Well, that was really, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you or that you would like to talk about in regards to yourself or your background or trust? Anything I missed? I don't think so. I think I think we got a pretty good. Oh, that was so good. great. I'm I'm really inspired. I feel like in some way I need to change the world now. That's what you've inspired you me to do. So. And you should call me first. <laughs> I will. I will. Thank you so much for your time. It's been so great. Thank you so much. Fantastic, Emily. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Portfolio Pitch, brought to you by The Slice Podcast and powered by Startup Blog Post. To support the show, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us at Sliced Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.